Please turn to John chapter 18 again. We're looking at verses 12 through to verse 27. And the title of my sermon is Jesus Bound and Led Away. Jesus Bound and Led Away. Having surrendered himself to the Roman soldiers, their captain, and also to the uh, temple police who came to arrest him, the Lord Jesus Christ would now be bound and he would be led to the palace of the Jewish high priest where he would be put on trial. Just have a look at John 18 verses 12 to 14 again. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Just look in there at verse 12. It took me quite a while after I'd read verse 12 to go any further. You know, just look at it yet again. The band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. You can't just read a verse like that and move on and think, okay, then I'll, I can, I can write this. I, and it's very profound, isn't it? When you think of what's being said in that verse. It was ages, to be quite honest, before I could put pen to paper or put finger to keyboard. After all, the events that were unfolding unfolding at that time, how can we even begin to appreciate what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane? Allow me to remind you of what had already happened up to verse 12. The people who are mentioned in verse 12, they are described as a multitude in Luke chapter 22 and verse 47. That's the the Roman soldiers, their captain and the temple police, a multitude of people. And that multitude had already experienced the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back to verses 4 and 6 here. You'll see what I mean. Looking at chapter 18, 4 to 6. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, this is to the multitude, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am, or I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him, with them. And as soon then, as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Just try and picture something of that. Jesus spoke just two words. I am. You you say that in the course of the day many times. I know some people, they can't speak a sentence without telling us what I am is doing and what I am is going to do. And as I said last week, I am, you can find that Uh, hundreds of times in the New Testament 
Jesus saying it, various others saying, I am. Jesus said, I am. And what happened there? That multitude, they fell back and they fell to the ground. That is a demonstration of the divine power of Jesus. They experienced it. And they also witnessed his compassion after Peter had drawn his sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. According to Dr. Luke's account, Jesus touched his ear and he healed him. Peter, acting according to the flesh and not after the spirit, gets his sword out full of a fleshy bravado, shall we say, chops off the servant's ear, Jesus heals him. Well, it's a show of his divinity again, isn't it? But also a show of his compassion. The multitude had witnessed all of that. Yet they still dared to take hold of him and bind none other than the incarnate Son of God. Now, this is where I got stuck. Binding the incarnate Son of God. That speaks volumes about how utterly depraved the human heart is that the creature should bind the creator. And that depravity is universal. As it's written in verse 12, then the band of the capt- the band and the captain, the band and the captain, the band is the Roman soldiers and their captain, they're pagans, Gentiles, And officers of the Jews, the temple police, so they were the Jews. That multitude consisted of Gentiles and Jews. So the Son of God was placed under arrest by Gentiles and Jews alike. And that sample there, I, I call it a sample, that multitude, it is a sample, vividly reflects the attitude of heart of the whole world, the whole unconverted world towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't, anyone who's not a Christian, don't sit there tutting about the bad treatment that we're reading of there. This is universal. The attitude of heart is one of depravity. That's the condition of the heart. Total depravity. As Jesus said to His disciples in chapter 15 and verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said of the Christ who was to come into the world, he is despised and rejected by men. And so we read that they took Jesus and they bound him. Let's be very clear about something. What we read here only happened because Jesus permitted it to happen. It really did happen. They really did do those terrible things, but Jesus permitted it. Jesus had already demonstrated his divine power. Let's face it, he could have easily destroyed the entire multitude. Or he could have made them turn on one another. Just like in the days of Gideon, about 1,200 years earlier, when the Lord 
delivered Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. In the battle that took place, Israel was heavily outnumbered. However, concerning the enemy, the Midianites, it is written in Judges chapter 7 and verse 22 that the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow. The enemies of Israel, they turned on themselves. Jesus is the Lord. He is Jehovah Jesus. He could have done the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. That multitude, they could have turned on one another with their clubs and whatever whatever, whatever um, weapons they had on them. Jesus could have done that very easily had he wanted to. At the very least, Jesus could have struck them all with a temporary blindness, just like he did in the time of the prophet Elisha about 900 years earlier. On that occasion, Elisha was surrounded by the Syrians who were the enemy of Israel at the time and the Syrians, they came for the prophet Elisha. So what Elisha did was he prayed to the Lord and he said, strike this people, I pray with blindness. And he, that is the Lord, struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. All those Syrians were struck with a temporary blindness. Again, Jesus could have done all that if he'd wanted to, because he is the Lord. None of those things did happen, though, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus allowed the multitude to arrest him, bind him, take him away. Why was that? It's because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we are all sinners. People with depraved hearts. Every single one of us here was born into the world with a depraved heart, just like those soldiers just like their captain, just like the temple police. Even at our conception, we were sinful. People will argue, the, the pro-abortionists in this world, they will argue that, um, you. some will argue, including the doctor, um, the doctor in this island who brought in the abortion laws, a medical doctor no less, Dr. Allenson, I'd forgotten his name for a second there, People will argue that we only become babies when we're born. You, you, you instinctively know that's a lot of nonsense. The scientists will uh, are agreed, at least the vast majority of them are agreed, that life starts at conception. And at conception, we are sinful. Do you think I'm exaggerating? I'm not. King David said to the Lord, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't talking about his mother's sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's him being in sin when he was conceived. What David said about himself applies equally to each one of us here. Therefore, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you are not trusting in Jesus for your salvation, you are a prisoner of sin and Satan. You are bound to sin and to Satan. As the hymn writer said, 
fast bound in sin and nature's night. However, the good news is that Jesus allowed wicked men to bind him and ultimately to nail him to a cross in order to set the captives free. People like you and me. And that really is something to smile about and to rejoice about if indeed you know Jesus. Thank God that Jesus allowed those wicked men to bind him and in so doing, he has set me free. You can say that if you're Christian, trusting in him. Look at verse 13 now. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Having been bound, Jesus was led away to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Annas is also described as uh, being high priest, such as in Luke chapter 3 and verse 2. Therefore, it would seem that Annas held on to his title and his authority, that the authority that went with it, even when he had retired and his son-in-law was the high priest. All said and done, Jesus is the heavenly, the great heavenly high priest. We don't look to earthly high priests, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great heavenly high priest who is seated in heaven above, at the right hand of the throne of God where he ever lives to make intercession for those who are trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. As for those high priests, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, one day they will appear before the judgment seat of the infinitely wise judge and great heavenly high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer will they have their lofty titles and the power and the authority that they once had. Like the rest of us, they will bow the knee and they will confess confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 14. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That's a reference to when the Lord Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead as a result of that miracle and other miracles that Jesus performed, the Jewish religious leaders, they got into a real panic. And we can read about what happened back in chapter 11. If you want to turn to it, keep your finger in John chapter 18. I'm going to turn back to John 11 and read it to you. 11 verse 45. Listen to this. This is after the raising of Lazarus. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. You'd think they'd be praising God, wouldn't you? But they, that's not how they were thinking. They weren't thanking God for the miracles um, that Jesus performed, that's for sure. They said, 
if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. So he starts with a nice insult there, tells them they're a bunch of blockheads. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for the nation only, but that also he should gather together in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. So the high priest uh, Caiaphas, he prophesied, he predicted that Jesus should die for the nation. He didn't have um, good reasons for that. He was worried about his position. He didn't want the Rome. He didn't want Jesus causing problems for the Jews. Uh, he didn't want the Romans coming down hard on the Jewish nation and he most of all Caiaphas the high priest and all the Jewish religious leaders they didn't want to lose their privileges so they needed to get rid of that one man for the nation or for their their own sakes really but he was right in a sense because it was important that the Lord Jesus Christ should die on the cross for all who would come to saving faith in him. Not not just for not for the nation of Israel, certainly for people uh, for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Even now, who trust in him, it was important that the Lord Jesus Christ should lay down his life at the cross. Coming back to today's passage in verse 14, it would seem that the Holy Spirit inspired John to make reference to what Caiaphas proposed back in John 11 to show us what motivated the Jewish religious rulers to arrest and to crucify Jesus, despite him demonstrating with his miracles that he was the promised Messiah. Those corrupt men would stop at nothing to hang on to their power and to their privileges. They had made up their minds to kill Jesus long before his arrest, his trial and his execution. However, above all of those wicked schemes of Caiaphas and the Jewish religious council, God himself, this is the important thing, God himself had determined before the foundation of the world that his beloved son be taken and that by wicked hands he would be crucified and put to death on the cross as an atonement for sin. God had decreed these things should happen. The passage that we are looking at consists of 16 verses and it gives details of the binding and the taking away of the incarnate son of God He's appearing before the Jewish high priest and even of him being physically assaulted. And it goes without saying that those matters are of the greatest importance. Jesus being taken and assaulted and questioned 
by a wicked judge. What can be more important than that for us to consider? Even so, woven into this passage are seven verses that relate to the Apostle Peter's denial of Jesus. That's nearly half of the passage. Does that tell you something? It ought to tell you that that was very, very important. The very fact that it was woven into this passage, the denials the, 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 of, of um, Peter. We'll have, to, we'll have a look at those verses right now. We'll look at Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Starting at verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and brought him Peter Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then we go to verse 25. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied him again, and immediately the cock crew. So you've got Peter denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times times and then the cock crew. The first thing that we can see is that Peter was accompanied by another disciple. The fact that of the four gospel writers only John mentions this detail has led many to speculate that that other disciple that accompanied him must have been the writer of this gospel, the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Especially when you consider that Peter and John were oftentimes found together. It may have been John who went with Peter, but it needs to be appreciated that like Peter, John was just a fisherman from Galilee. That's all. As such, it's hard to imagine that he would have been someone who would have been known to the high priest. And it's also hard to imagine that John, the fisherman from Galilee, had any authority over the doorkeeper at the temple. Also, just look at what happened when Peter and John appeared before the high priest Annas and Caiaphas when they were arrested for preaching the gospel shortly after the ascension of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 4 here. Let's see what happened to Peter and John, when they appeared before the two high priests. John chapter, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 4, reading from verse 6. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, that's his son-in-law obviously, and John 
and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem and when they had set them in the midst, they, that them, that includes Peter and John, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given unto amongst men, whereby we must be saved. Listen, we'll look at this now, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. To me that sounds like Peter and John were a couple of nobodies in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. However, you can be sure that they were both precious in the sight of God and that they were dearly loved by him with an everlasting love. And that's just like all followers, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just about sums up what uh, how Christians are. Nobodies in the world, but precious in God's sight. As for Peter and his three denials of Jesus, that didn't happen out of the blue. It was the fulfilment of what Jesus had said would happen back in chapter 13, verse 38. Clearly, Peter loved Jesus. He just couldn't resist cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. That's an act of bravery, I suppose, but he was acting in the flesh. Neither could he resist following Jesus after his arrest. But also he was a big coward at the time when he denied Jesus not once but twice but three times. Earlier he'd been full of bravado chopping off the, the ear of Malchus. But now he denies Jesus three times. This is the flesh for you. You, you just don't know where you are with it. Unpredictable. And it's a big picture of many Christians. They love Jesus, or at least they say they love him. But they nevertheless deny him because what? Why did Peter deny Jesus? He feared men. And this is what the problem with so many Christians. They do love Jesus, but at the same time, they fear men. They fear what people will say. They will fear people unfriending them on Facebook. They will fear the repercussions at work. They are more fearful of men than they are God. And a Christian is someone who does not fear men, but he does fear God. Because God is to be feared by the saints. To be had in reverence by all who are about him.
And fear goes hand in hand with faith. Don't fear men, but fear God. But it's not a position that Peter remained in, this fearful, cowardly way, is it? After Jesus had returned to heavenly glory, Peter was seen to have not a a fleshy boldness, but a holy boldness. For example, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended, Peter was filled with the Spirit, and he preached a powerful message on the day of Pentecost, a a message of repentance to the Jews who had assembled in Jerusalem, Also, Acts of the Apostles bears testimony to Peter and to the other apostles and to the church generally, rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. It was the same in the Old Testament. This isn't just New Testament theology. This is Old Testament stuff as well. Moses considered the reproach of Christ the Christ who was to come into the world. He considered that greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 to 9, the Apostle Paul said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't deny him. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Where the Apostle Paul said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Do you know what he actually meant then? It's, so, it's always interesting to look at the original Greek or the original Hebrew. You can learn a lot from that. That word fear, where he says God has not given us a spirit of fear, fear has reference to timidity and to cowardice. God does not give his redeemed Christians a spirit of fear, timidity and cowardice. He really doesn't. Coming back to our passage, let's have a look at verses 19 to 29. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort. And in secret I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, Why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. When you look at that, you'll see that no charges were read out 
There weren't any. Jesus was not accused of any wrongdoing. He had done nothing wrong. Annas asked Jesus about his doctrine, but don't imagine that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, willing to be taught deep spiritual truths. That's not how it was. The high priest was simply probing and looking for something, anything with which to accuse Jesus of misinterpreting God's law, something to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. He was fishing at the time. However, Jesus made it clear to Annas that he taught publicly in the synagogues, in the temple, for the whole world to hear. Nothing was taught in secret. He had no secret agenda. There was nothing like that. There was nothing blasphemous, nothing seditious in his teaching. All Annas had to do was ask the multitudes who had heard Jesus. They would have told him. That ought to have been the end of the matter, but it wasn't. Jesus ought to have been released when he said what he said to the high priest, but he wasn't released. We already know that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, had already deemed it expedient for Jesus to die. As such, a guilty verdict had, in a sense, already been reached. Before this trial started, Jesus had been found guilty. What was unfolding was without doubt a travesty of justice with Jesus, who is the infinitely wise judge of all the earth, the great heavenly high priest, being interrogated by a wicked and corrupt earthly high priest. Annas must have been feeling very, very uncomfortable when he was confronted with the divine wisdom of Jesus. When he began to question Jesus, Jesus came out with that divine wisdom. Annas, he wouldn't have known what to say next. He must have been squirming and struggling. However, the interview ended very abruptly when one of the temple police came to the rescue of the high priest, and struck the incarnate Son of God with the palm of his hand. By the way, let's remember that Jesus was bound, which means he wouldn't have even been able to raise his hand and try to protect his face when he got hit with an open hand in his face. And again, all of this was predicted in the Old Testament. It happened, it's a reality, it was terrible, but... These things were prophesied. Uh, It was according to God's determinate counsel. For example, in the prophecy of Isaiah, it is written, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Those words were spoken about 700 years before the solemn event that we have been considering this morning. The good news, and it really is good news. The good news is that the kangaroo court and the act of violence by a sinful and wicked creature against his maker would culminate in Jesus being nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up to die between two thieves as he bare away the sins of all who trust in him. No matter how sinful, How wicked 
they are, you are. Even people like us, may each one of us here see that all of this was done in order to set you free, to serve God in newness of life as a sinner saved by grace. Amen.